Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly dungeon muser today. Uh, today I want to bring uh, bring all up to speed on uh, how things have been going with our games in the month of October. I believe the last time I recorded something was uh, around um, the end of September. Um, and yeah, and then otherwise just uh, see if there's any other topics that I might cover. Because uh, I find myself with some time when I got to be out of the house, and what better time to record a podcast than when I've got to run errands? So let's get with the show. Okay, so to kick things off, let's talk about the uh, state of play. Uh, so uh, at the time of recording, we are on to um, we've had session seventy-six of our ongoing uh, Night Below campaign, the one played with uh, AD and D Second Edition. We have also um, played, uh, session 34 of our Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign, and that one's actually been, um, it, it's been, I mean, that's been a lot of fun the whole time along, too, but with the release of, um, uh, 5th edition's newest adventure, uh, mega adventure, uh, Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Maiden, um, I found that there's been a great deal of new material, that I can draw from to add to uh, our campaign. Um, Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden is uh, designed for 5th edition, and chronologically it's set a couple of years, af- or a few years, after the events of the Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign, the adventure that we were using uh, to kick off that uh, AD&D second quarantine campaign. But um, there's a lot of stuff I can actually uh, um, adapt quite easily. There's a couple of things that I find in that uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden adventure that are... Um, tonally not uh, what I was shooting for in our game, but uh, to be honest, so much of it is just so awesome. Um, if you're not familiar with the uh, the adventure, uh, it is... Um, I'm not going to spoil any of the like major threats or anything other than to say that it, um, it definitely lives up to its stated inspiration of being... Um, drawing heavily from the themes uh, present in H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, um, the uh, 1980s version of the movie The Thing, and uh, the film Alien, the original uh, Alien. It's definitely got a great horror vibe to it. Um, there's some great rules for uh, desolation and for traveling in the wilderness, um, and really like playing up that as a, an element of your uh, of your adventure. And those, you know, regular listeners will know that uh, any kind of um, rules that help to uh, reinforce the theme of or the feel of the uh, environment uh, definitely will be positives in my book. Um, there's also a great, uh, a really simplified random encounter table as well, too, that I, I like a great deal. Just, it, um, you know, it's, it's two different roles you make. One of them sets the number of uh, encounters you'll have and when they will occur and then the second role dictates what's actually you know I mean there may be more than one role if there's more than one encounter but it'll dictate sort of when uh, what it is they're encountering and it's um, it definitely is um, the latter uh, table is definitely skewed to the specifics of the um, Icewind Dale setting but they are not balanced which I, I like a great deal so they uh, th- there are encounters that players need to be cautious either talk their way out of or avoid and uh, there's some easier ones and just you know one of the things that is nice with uh, um, with that is that you know characters who get to middle middle level or whatnot they're going to be able to have 
Uh, random encounters will be on both sides of the difficulty spectrum. Some will be pushovers for them, uh, you know, and some will be quite challenging for them. And that's, I think that's really cool because the, you know, uh, one of the ways where uh, games like 5th edition, like AD&D 2nd, uh, or I mean AD&D in general, um, differ from games like 3rd edition, Pathfinder, Pathfinder 2, Starfinder, is that the assumption isn't that, uh, or 4th edition DD for that matter, uh, the assumption isn't that the encounters will be all keyed relative to the character's level. You know, each of those games has uh, different ways of uh, decoupling the math from that as well, too. So, like, you know, um, there are going to be adversaries that will be difficult for you if you are uh, playing AD&D or D&D 5th or whatever, but the um, it's not quite as... Uh, as punishing mathematically as it is in, say, Pathfinder 2nd or D&D 4th. Uh, so, what, and the reason I, I mention that is because one of my players had mentioned how, like, you know, sometimes it is kind of cool to feel like we're much bigger badasses than the things that they've been fighting, particularly in a game like AD&D where those early levels are a real slog. Like, it's it's tough. You know, life is tough as a low-level player character in uh, AD&D. So, you know, being able to have times in the campaign where you can feel the advancement and feel the development of the character and feel like an utter badass in comparison to the uh, the adversaries you're facing. Um, it's important to let those low-level encounters play out, even though it's it's not going to be a, a challenge for them, even though they, they may wipe the floor with them. I mean, the uh, adversaries, if you're playing AD&D, they may surrender uh, because of the, you know, they'll trigger a morale uh, check quite uh, soon. But... Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just that that um, that module has um, some really really great. Uh, I, I say module; it's it's an adventure, but there's a lot of modular encounters in there that are quite easily adapted or relocated or whatever, you know. And um, it's introduced some really fun uh, high fantasy elements to our to our game, you know. Not the least, I guess, one of the things that has happened over the last couple of weeks is we've had, oddly enough, um, a weir bear. Uh, supporting NPC introduced in both of our AD&D campaigns. Um, now, I have been using the rules for Night Howlers, uh, or from a product called Night Howlers that was released for uh, basic D&D back in the uh, late 80s. And it's a uh, it's a game or a module about playing lycanthropes in, uh, in basic D&D. And while the XP charts may not quite track directly to AD&D, I don't care enough to, to modify them, particularly for an NPC. So it's kind of cool that we get a chance to uh, to see how these, um, you know, uh, to see how these characters will play out. Um, and I also realized uh, with the, uh, not, not so much with the Night Below uh, Bear, but the Bear did play a really useful role when we were down quite a few players in our Icewind Dale game. Uh, or Legacy of the Crystal Shard game, and I forgot, like, oh yeah, of course, I mean, you know, one of the ways to mitigate when you've got low, uh, a low player count at a session is just to introduce, you know, uh, more NPCs, and um, that's, the players are able to command them quite easily, especially if they're not spellcasters, and I think the players enjoy that, you know, that um, that change-up, you know, when they're getting, especially for player, uh, players who may be playing more casters or, you know, less melee-oriented uh, characters. In our last, uh, in the first session where the the Weir Bear from 
our Legacy of the Crystal Shard game, uh, whose name is Osten. Um, he has, uh, he, he's proven to be a real badass. Hey, you know, he, he's also quite, you know, because in AD&D, uh, large-sized creatures take more damage from, uh, from a lot of weapons, uh, than the, uh, the, he was taking quite a bit of damage in, in, uh, the one encounter he fought in, but it was cool seeing the player, uh, John, who normally plays, his character is a cleric ranger, so he, uh, often stays at range and, and uh, either casting spells or, you know, raining arrows down. It was I think it was cool for him being able to play a badass, you know, werebear who was able to get right in there and, you know, mix things up. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, the, uh, that particular product is, is one of my favorite things, uh, that I've, uh, one of the favorite things I've got for fifth edition D and D. Um, it may be, I think I'm, I may still like Eberron, uh, rising to the last war a little bit better than it, but it's, it's certainly, I think I, it's a little, it's even inched above the, um, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. It's another, that's another, uh, one, uh, product for a fifth edition that I really, really like. Uh, the, I mean, and partly is because I think it plays through a lot of the themes and a lot of the settings that I really like, and uh, the art in it is just, oh my goodness, it's really, really beautiful. So we've got just tons and tons of things in there that uh, I get to add to our ongoing uh, AD&D second uh, campaign, and uh, yeah, and it's really good, you know, I mean, and I guess maybe that's the um, that's the topic maybe I'll talk about uh, today is, is, you know, adaptation and uh, incorporation. Um, because that has proven to be a, a huge boon to this campaign. Uh, I, you know, the, the, and the Night Below campaign, the Night Below campaign is going terrific, so is the Ash game. The Ash game, we are, are, are players, uh, the Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game. The players continue to explore the, um, this tower, and we had a really rough session uh, last time. That their characters were fighting a, uh, some kind of smoke wizard, um, and... That was challenging uh, for the players, definitely. But um, the that campaign continues on uh, well. We've had no other uh, player fatalities in that, or character fatalities in that. So that's uh, that's been good. <laughs> um, in our uh, Night Below campaign, we uh, that continues on pretty well. We we had a really uh, neat, um, more like done in one kind of story uh, session on uh, Friday. That was. The characters at this point are are beginning to make their way uh, to take on this uh, orc stronghold that they think is is hidden in the middle of the uh, in the Thornwood Forest, which is near where the the like I mean it's the big forest in the uh, campaign area, and uh, they suspect that the orcs have some link to whatever creatures these uh, dwellers beneath that are uh, are threatening them. Uh, the, the kind of the big bad the characters think that they're connected to them so it'll be interesting to see if that pans out to be the case um, but the um, the camp last session was one of these ones that I intended to sort of uh, the players were it was a little more um, story uh, focused than uh, a lot of other sessions in that campaign the characters kind of encountered and found themselves trapped in this sort of like um, spectral, uh, like rehashing or reliving of a uh, uh, of an old event involving some kind of knight or uh, squire, and um, yeah, I won't spoil it for anyone who may want to watch that. But uh, it uh, 
it definitely um, was much more of a uh, like a camp a session for them to uh, to uh, learn a bit more about the background uh, of the of the castle they're going to, uh, and it was it was great. I mean, like it, it turned out, I, I was a little worried uh, whether putting my thumb on the scale so heavily in terms of like a story. Um, intrusion in that campaign because they really didn't have much of an opportunity to avoid uh, much of the encounters in there. Um, it was it was cool. Like, I mean, I, I made use of atmospheric uh, storytelling in it. But the thing that... Um, and actually, that happened in our, our Icewind Dale game as well, too, where um, there were things... You know, one of the things that I like about uh, Sandbox games uh, and one of the things I like doing... Uh, in my adventures or when I'm running things is I try and have, pl- like, I much prefer players figuring things out in the setting for themselves, right? Like, it's it's fun for them to discover connections between different things, and, and uh, they definitely do that quite a bit in our, uh, you know, um, our Night Below campaign. And, uh, so, and, and they also try and do that in our, uh, you know, our Icewind Dale game as well, but sometimes just, you know, um, things get missed, right? Like sometimes you'll you'll introduce something and, and you, you'll think that, oh, this is pretty obvious, but the players either gloss over it or they don't see it as the anomaly that should be drawing their attention that, that you do. And um, what I've been doing over the last little while is in those circumstances, I'll, is I will often ask the players kind of leading questions about it. So just, just to help prompt their their thinking, uh, you know, if they if they go along the the wrong route, or you know, and I, you know, I mean, I think that there there is a school of DM thought that says, you know, whatever road gets the players to the answer, that's the right one. Like if the players think it's X Y Z, and and they think it that that that's the, uh, you know, you you should just make that be the answer because it's that's what they've sort of pieced together from it, and. I I don't really agree with that because like sometimes there's just um, I don't know like if you have an idea in mind there's a difference between you know having different ways to get to the same evidence you know uh, as opposed to having the conclusion like the actual the thing that um, the thing that's happened the uh, have the the result of the of the mystery be dictated by the players you know like um, I, I am definitely in, in a mystery game. I'm definitely in favor of seeing players um, being able to, you know, have all roads lead to Rome, as it were. Like, if they find a clue in one location or another location or from one character or another character, I'm definitely in support of them being able to find, you know, being flexible in that way. But ultimately, I think I, I do like making players w- figure out what the actual situation is. And if the players, or the characters, I should say, are, I guess, no, no, it's if the players... Um, make an error in their assessment of the situation, which leads to a, a wrong conclusion. Their characters did that as well, and I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with letting them, letting that kind of run, and then if they down the road sort of point out something as being no, you know, another character in the game, an NPC, can point out no, 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 that doesn't make any sense for what you're saying, you know, or present them with new evidence that might change the way that they thought about things before. So, um. So that's, uh, I mean, that, that in, in our, the last two games, the things that we sort of, I, I uh, helped sort of move them, move their thinking towards was to, to help them figuring out what was going on with the, 
um, this kind of ghostly night thing, and um, helping them figure out this uh, this sort of mystery there was with in our Icewind Dale game, there was this um, uh, altar uh, to a certain goddess, and I'd kind of decided that what this would do is uh, it would um, it would allow you to uh, if you traced a you know an altar to the goddess of magic, and if you had traced the symbol across the uh, the altar, uh, like the, across the front, and then it would identify magic items for you. So that was kind of a cool way of, um, you know, of allowing the player characters who don't have a magic user regularly in the group to suddenly identify a bunch of the magic items that they 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 found. But what the players ended up doing is they ran their their kind of uh, hands across it. They saw it glowed on the top, and they're like, "Huh, oh, that's neat," and kind of walked away. So the way that I handled it was to say, well, hold on, you know, I picked out the the cleric in the group and I said, like, you know, if your god had an altar of some kind that manifested some kind of physical manifestation, you know, or, or a visible manifestation of their power, do you think that it would just be, you know, um, that it would be just something that is the uh, kind of bells and whistles, like a, like a uh, you know, something that would just um, be a flash of light? Uh, or do you think there's something more to it? And that was enough prompting to have them go, okay, hold on, no, wait a minute. There's something more going on here. And, you know, I mean, that's... Um, in, in a sandbox game, uh, some might argue that that's putting... You know, that's kind of uh, shepherding the, the characters a little too heavily. But what I would say is that, you know, the characters... The, the players do not have the knowledge that the characters do. Not by the, you know, the, the context in which they're seeing things. Not in which... Not in the... Um, you know, in the the background that they would know about their world, all of that stuff is uh, sometimes needs to be handed to the player to to help them understand where their characters, uh, what their characters' perspectives actually would be, and um, and it was fine. Like what, when the players did figure out what it was, boy oh boy, like seeing the look on their faces was terrific, and then seeing them figure that out, you know, and that's the kind of like figuring out riddles or figuring out the situation. Same thing with the. Uh, the mystery in our uh, our other uh, game as well too in our um, night below one when they were f- when they figured out what the what was going on with this night um, it was great it was really really cool like I think that there's a feeling of satisfaction uh, that the players get when they figure out something about the world you know um, it does it's not necessarily a, a riddle or whatever but that bit of reconciling you know uh, lingering questions or lingering unknown, um, causes or motivations or whatnot, that can be a really powerful source of, uh, of satisfaction for, uh, for the players. Um, if you pair that as well too, with a sweet XP bonus or a sweet loot reward, boy, oh boy, it's an even better, um, and more satisfying uh, resolution for it. So, um, so now I'm, I'm going to pause this section right now, uh, this is talking a lot about the AD and D game. Let's go quickly put a pin in, adaptation stuff, and I'll talk about some of the other games we've run in October so far. Okay, so next up is uh, a couple of the games that we have uh, played in the last little while. Uh, those include, uh, we did a, oh gosh, let's see, we did a, a pickup session of the uh, Cult Divinity Lost uh, game, playing uh, a horror uh, at one shot, and uh, Last time I ran that game, we were running our an adventure from the uh, Dracula dossier uh, EDOM files 
report or um, adventure um, kind of compilation. And I think it went a lot smoother this time uh, than it did before. Uh, partly, maybe partly because we were playing in modern day, and partly because the characters made their own characters. But it's a uh, man. Oh man, Cult is a really, really good game. Um, like I, I don't. Uh, uh, when I run Cult uh, as an ongoing game, wherever that might be, I don't think I would ever use the all of the default setting because the default setting is quite uh, extreme. But I'll bet you I would make use of probably about 75% of it. Um, you know, and some of the suggestions uh, for uh, for how to present horror or the horror for the characters is definitely skewed towards the, like, body horror or, like, um, body humiliation kind of stuff. And I'm, that's not really... That's not my bag of uh, horror or certainly not what I want to roleplay. Um, but the uh, the actual mechanics of the of the horror game is really 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 good like it's I, I think it does a really good job of having the players have autonomy and and input into how their you know how their characters are progressing through the story and it does a, a, uh, that being said it also does a really good job of having some pretty fun and surprising uh, consequences from the uh, dice rolls so it's um yeah, it's a really solid game. Like I, I really, really, uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I, uh, I, I don't know right now. Uh, you know, I don't have a idea in mind for what I would do uh, as an ongoing campaign with it. But I kind of, um, you know, I certainly enjoy the uh, uh, what do you call it? The uh, uh, running the one shot uh, with it. Yeah, it's just I'm trying to think of what what it is about it that. I think, you know, it is a, a story game and horror is one of those genres where like you're sort of forced to lose control of your character in some circumstances. That powerlessness is a part of playing the horror game. And what I had, had thought before running it uh, was that the the whole approach of, uh, of a story game, the whole perspective of the players having that much more agency over what happens in the game and you know, what happens to their characters, that it might remove that. But um, I don't think, I didn't find that to be the case at all. I found that the characters, the players still felt very, very, you know, um, anxious about what was happening to their characters and what might happen. And, and the way that their, um, the ideas they gave me for what they wanted to see happen with their characters, um, it lends the game a really good collaborative atmosphere while still maintaining that horror, you know, uh, that horror kind of, um, feel to it. The, the, the things that, that make like the loss of control, the, the fear of the unknown, the, the, the good things that go into making for a fun, um, horror role-playing game. Um, one of the things that I particularly loved about it was the, um, one of the mechanics is that you create these hooks, uh, that uh, the players, you know, they want in a session, they want something to happen. They want X to, to you know, involve with, why and, and that's as simple as like I want so I think so and so should confront his ex-wife about what he had gone through or or whatever you know and that gives the agency for the DM to engage in what would in most role playing games see as sort of like filler uh, scenes right where it's just it's filling out background stuff and for the players there's a, a specific reward because they get experience points when they go through those things they get extra XP for it. So the whole, the combination of the two is that it gives you a really good reason to engage with that, uh, that sort of like filler material that really 
adds more backstory and more credibility to the whole thing, you know? Like, I mean, in a, in a horror film, it's not... The thing that sort of gives the horror a horror film or a horror story um, weight is often the, uh, the, the cost or the threat of... Um, of what is, uh, what can be lost, you know, like if having those quieter scenes with, um, someone's ex-wife or someone's, you know, um, day-to-day responsibilities, the, the effect that the, um, the encounters and the, and the exploration of the unknown and, and the exposure to the horror that that has on those relationships is, is a good way of showing the, the arc that the characters go through in the course of, uh, playing through a horror story, right? And uh, Delta Green does a, the Delta Green RPG does a cool job of that with respect to um, their bonds. But I think I like this even better. I think this is an even better way of of managing it because it's just uh, um, it involves the characters. It just does a better job of having it be part of the ongoing story as opposed to something that happens in between uh, sessions. So it was a really, really, really fun session. Um, it's a terrific game, and I'm really looking forward to exploring more of that. Uh, I think Cult will probably be my next pickup game uh, as well uh, for when we, you know, when we find ourselves without something to play. Um, so that was one of the pickups. Next, let's talk about the uh, Starfighter, uh, two sessions that we're playing in um, uh, in October. Okay, so next game up is uh, Paizo's Starfinder uh, RPG fantasy, science fantasy RPG, I should say. Um so this one is, uh, we, I decided I was going to run two, um, we didn't have any, uh, charity sessions this month, so I thought I would run two, uh, one shots with, uh, Starfinder, uh, or with, to kind of, um, match up with the, uh, horror kind of theme in, uh, uh, October, but what I ended up, uh, deciding on, instead of, uh, going with, like, a traditional horror game, uh, I went with, uh, uh, Starfinder instead, which is maybe, you know, it may, may seem like a bit of an unusual uh, choice for it, but there's a um, an adventure path called the um, Threefold, I think it's called Threefold Conspiracy, and the first adventure is called the Chimera Mystery, and uh, it's a really, really interesting adventure, so I uh, I thought that might be a good fit. And to be honest, like I've been looking for an excuse to run Starfinder again too. Just it's, um, I can't remember what came out for it that prompted my interest or whether it was just someone, I was talking with someone about it. But the thing with Starfinder, and I've mentioned it quite a few times in, on the podcast before, uh, including a pretty in-depth kind of assessment of how I think, you know, uh, Starfinder differs. But the, the th- I think the thing that, that particularly is of interest to me about that game or appeals to me about that game is... Um, is the fact that it is a, uh, it is so uniquely its own world, you know, like there's been other, uh, attempts to make kind of a space, you know, D and D, uh, type setting before, uh, Spelljammer, uh, Dragonstar, um, I can't think of any others, um, offhand, but I'm sure that there have been smaller print ones. And for, if anyone is a creator of, of that type of, uh, setting, and I'm not aware of it, my apologies for, uh, uh, for missing, uh, that in the list, but it just, those other ones before just have very much felt, um, they didn't feel as unique as what Starfinder did. And I wonder whether 
it's because those other games just really try to, you know, spacify a lot of D&D concepts, whereas Starfinder really does seem to feel like it, its primary inspiration is science fiction uh, content, and then it overlays a D&D-esque feel to it. So, you know, like there are, in the setting, there are distinctly, you know, Barsoomian uh, things from uh, John Carter of Mars, and there are, you know, um, elements of Starship Troopers in there, and there's elements of uh, Star Wars and Star Trek and Dune and uh, like just a bunch of other stuff. And yes, it the game and the setting itself are all uh, very um, they have D and D elements in them as well. You know, like there are elves, there are dwarves, there are those things. But what they led with was the unusual species the the uh there's humans there's androids which are pretty prevalent in uh, i mean androids aren't prevalent in um pathfinder but they're they're there but they also add um you know some clearly alien species as well too very different from uh normal human the shirin are these insect people there's forearm kasathans there are these um psychic uh humanoids with these strange antennae coming from their heads called the shunta uh, there's the Vesk, the reptilian uh, Vesk, which are kind of similar to, you know, lizard men, but definitely their own thing. So it doesn't feel like it's um, just D&D in space. It feels like its own, distinctly its own thing. And everything they build on, they Starfinder, you know, D&D &D concepts as opposed to taking D&D &D concepts and just adding space. And I don't know if that makes sense, uh, but that's the feel for... Um, that's the feel that I really get from that game. It's just, it, it feels so distinct from other uh, efforts at doing the same. And the game, like the actual game rules themselves, uh, the actual game rules are not necessarily, you know, they're not, there's no like amazing innovations they do with it necessarily. Like there's a stamina mechanic, but that was done in uh, Fantasy Fight, or not Fantasy Fight, in the um, Saga Star Wars uh, game before. Um, and there's been other D20 games that have done the similar thing. I think Spycraft may have done something similar to that. Um, or at least one of the additions to Spycraft. So, like, it, it doesn't necessarily set the world on fire with respect to its, uh, its mechanics. Um, I mean, they're good. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to undersell them. They're definitely, there's good thought that's been put into them. Um, there's, especially the way that they model their adversaries in it. You know, it, I absolutely adore that the adversaries are built by a completely separate set of rules than what the uh, characters are and they're much more simplified and that in the first like you know monster book the alien archive one you get all the rules you need for building uh, monsters so it is very 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 easy to uh, add new you know things and new uh, adversaries to your uh, uh, to your game even on the fly like I've, I've had no difficulty at times when something's come up and I've kind of just you know, thrown together a concept in my mind and then quickly look at the um, Alien Archive to give us an idea of what the stats should be for it, you know, in terms of how much damage or the saving throw DC should be and stuff like that. And it's been, it's really, really fun to uh, uh, to run it that way. Um, but, 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 the, um, you know, the, the thing that really always captures me about it is the setting. You know, the setting itself, this this really un you know, unique um, 
mashup of like sci-fi influences and D&D influences and gaming influences uh, all together in this really, like, I don't know, really, really awesome whole. It just makes for, and, and in a, you know, um, in a sci-fi setting, just makes for a, a phenomenally fun, it has the, um, like the, the cosmopolitanism of, say, like a Star Wars cantina with the um, same kind of potential scope of that as well, but it's got a little more grittiness of something like, you know, uh, Battlestar Galactica or um, Firefly uh, or Farscape, where it's it's it feels more, you know, uh, more grounded. But I mean, cinematic, but uh, but still grounded. The magic is uh, definitely present and feels like um, a way that characters can distinguish themselves from other characters, but is not so powerful that it you have that uh, it, that issue of the you know quadratic mage where the mage becomes so powerful that they, it's hard to, you know, believe that there's a credible world where there's a couple of these things cruising around without, you know, dramatically altering and destabilizing the, um, uh, the, uh, political powers. Right. Um, but so, yeah, so I mean like the, um, the, the rules do, I think a very good job of supporting the setting, but it's really the setting. And we played the first part, uh, last week of it. And, man, oh man, like, I just had so much fun, the four hours flew by with it, um, it was, uh, my previous efforts at running Starfinder before have mostly been, um, well, I mean, we, we ran the first module in the Against the Aeon Throne adventure path, and then we, um, we sort of did a, a flashback thing that kind of never ended, and then that, that campaign wound up, but the flashback was on Akiton, where the character was kind of bopping around, and, and aware of a a specific looming threat, and I, um, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, I, I think I did not meet the expectations that the players had, or some of the players at least, with uh, with that particular uh, campaign, uh, but, uh, and I should not have let the, you know, uh, the flashback last as, as long, it just, I got so caught up in exploring the possibilities of that world, you know, um, and just sort of running it the way I would other uh, RPGs, um, yeah, I mean, if I started with just the Akiton stuff, I'll, I bet you I would have had a lot more fun, and, and uh, we would have more success with how the, uh, the campaign was rolling out, but um, the players really wanted to play the adventure path, and I just was not interested in, in uh, going back to it at that point, I was more interested in exploring what's going on. So with this particular one, it's, I thought, you know, the first adventure, the Chimera Mystery, does a, it's, it's, you can run that one and nothing else. It, um, it ends on a, I'm not going to spoil anything uh, here, but it ends in a satisfying kind of way, I think, uh, and in a kind of like 50s sci-fi sort of, or 60s uh, TV sci-fi kind of way. And it, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it would, uh, it, the kind of, um, paranoid and, uh, I don't know, claustrophobic feel for this particular adventure, which all takes place aboard one, um, starship, a, uh, the Chimera, while it's traveling through the drift, the, uh, Starfinder equivalent of, um, hyperspace. It's a really fun roleplay heavy, uh, you know, game. It's, I mean, there's, there's definitely, there, there's been combat in it as well, and I'll bet you there'll be combat in the future as well, but, and there's some, mis- there's some, uh, like, riddles and mysteries and other challenges that have to be faced throughout it, but it's, it's got a great, 
Um, yeah, it's got just a great, uh, you know, paranoid feel to the whole adventure, and it's got a terrific ending uh, as well. Really, really cool adventure. Um, whether I would continue on with the rest of the adventure path, I don't know. But what I do know is that uh, this little bit of time getting back to Starfinder and just, you know, throwing lots of the fun things that I, I really love about it in there and playing up the, you know, like the silly things like the Vesk voices or the Space Goblin voices or things like that. Like the unusual species that you have in Star, uh, in uh, Starfinder that you have accessible to play is is another thing that is really amazing. Um, species in the in Starfinder, really, you can get everything you need to know in a maybe like you know uh, three inch paragraph. You know, you all because all you really get from your species is like how many hit points you, that it contributes to your first level um, stat bonuses, and then any special abilities it has. And the cool thing with that, oh, and there's no size modifiers in um, Star Wars in uh, Starfinder. And the combination of those two things means that you can have an, a huge variety of wild alien races that you can play. Uplifted bears or, you know, uh, space dragons or floating brains or, you know, uh, sentient swarms of nano uh, robots. Uh, it, it's just, it's awesome, you know. And if you want to play something a little more down to earth, you can certainly uh, do that as well. You can just play a human or you can play an android or a full-on robot if you want to play... I can't remember the, the uh, species is called, but there is one that's just a robot. Um, or if you want to play space D&D and you want to play a dwarf or an elf or something like that, you can definitely do that. But the thing I love is that every alien archive, because they've um, they've not linked up the species to the um, to certain to things like uh, you know the. Um, uh, feats or, you know, like the way that uh, ancestry feats work in uh, Pathfinder 2, it's harder for them to introduce new, um, you know, a new uh, playable race or playable ancestry uh, without also providing, you know, 20 levels worth of ancestry feats. You don't need that in Starfinder. It only really comes in at the beginning. So what it means is that you get to play just a huge variety of awesome um, species, you know, and that's just fun, like super, super fun. Um, are the characters we have playing right now, I, I don't think any of them are terribly exotic because I really wanted to just showcase some of the cool stuff out of the, the base book. I mean, I've gone to the Alien Archive for a Skittermander because Skittermander is kind of Starfinder's signature, you know, alien race. They're these little, you know, three-foot-tall, fuzzy, six-armed um, creatures, and they are adorable. They come in a wide variety of bright colors and stuff, and they're just a fun, you know, a fun little species. Like, kind of, um, imagine like a combination of like a, you know, a psychedelic uh, tribble with Yoda, you know, kind of. And the uh, the the first session was just uh, crazy fun. I can't wait to, to play it again. I mean, the amount that we all just kind of laughed and, and um, yeah, I mean, the game is, you know, the setting in particular, the setting is just fun. It's just a crazy, crazy amount of fun, you know, and I think that um, they're, the fact that the mechanics don't set the world on fire, they're not rewriting, you know, the, uh, they're not rewriting uh, the, you know, kind of uh, conversation of, that's going on in gaming, they're not, you know, what they do is they do a good job of, of facilitating 
adventures of a wide, wide variety, be they mysteries, be they, you know, war stories, be they, you know, um, tomb plumbing archaeology, do they, spa- you know, space dogfights, shit like that. Whatever kind of uh, adventure you want to do, the rules are robust enough to make for a really, really, really fun uh, adventure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just, um, it it's one of those things where, you know, there, there is a great deal of uh, flexibility in the character creation. You know, you can, uh, I know two of the characters did make their own, um, two of the players made their own characters. But the thing that was the most fun about the session was really them not necessarily making use of their abilities or stuff. It's just them role-playing their characters. And it's really easy to think of the, you know, to, to lean into a, a broad personality or an archetype for your character too. Like one of the guys is playing a character who's kind of a, you know, um, not insufferable, but like kind of a know-it-all mystic. And one guy's playing basically Arnold Schwarzenegger's character from uh, Predator, but a giant space lizard, you know, a Vesk. And um, one of them is playing a, um, a character who is a space magician, you know? And it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is so much fun. And it's so neat playing in the sci-fi setting and, and without um, having it paired with a uh, specific setting, you know, without it being a Star Trek RPG or a Star Wars RPG, the expectations of what is and is not appropriate for a story is wide open. You know, it feels much more that you can do whatever you want. And I mean, like, you really can, to a degree, do whatever you want in those settings as well. But for, I think that, but I think that this game in particular does just a, uh, a really, really good job of, um, of facilitating that. There's there's elements that feel kind of like things you know, but they're unique enough to make it um, a really fresh uh, place to explore. Very, to be honest, very similar to uh, how I feel about the um, what do you call it? The uh, using champions, you know, in um, in an RPG uh, or as a RPG setting, where you got characters and, and settings and elements, you know, villains and such that feel kind of like existing Marvel or DC characters, but are their own thing. It really allows the story to be, feel familiar without being trapped in the, um, you know, in the, in the boundaries of what would be expected of the canon. So yeah, um, looking forward to playing our second uh, part of that adventure this weekend. Uh, just a, such a great game. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what's been going on with Starfinder. Plus, we've been able to cultivate a kind of a paranoid atmosphere as well, too. So we're getting closer to the horror stuff that I've promised for our uh, October session. Okay, so then the last thing I guess I have to talk about is uh, adaptation. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things that I do quite often in uh, in my games is uh, I make use of, I mean, a wide variety of different things that I adapt to... Uh, uh, to the game I'm running, whether it's, you know, uh, my uh, Galantry uh, campaign that I ran with uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, or whether it's the, uh, um, what do you call it, the uh, 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 Rhyme of the Frostmaiden that I'm using with AD&D 2nd, um, or some Pathfinder content that I've used with Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea. You know, there's lots and lots of folks who have said this before, right? Like, uh, Matt... Um, Colville has a, uh, a, a 
or talks about this a, a little bit. I mean, he's he's more more of his stuff is, is directly relating to fifth edition, I think, um, because it's the edition that he uses. Though his his uh, video on um, adapting rules from fourth edition to fifth edition is is exactly on point for this. Um, Hankerin Ferndale, the guy who does uh, the Runehammer YouTube channel, um, he also talks quite a bit about this. He's got a specific video uh, about you making use of, you know, uh, things. But, you know, it's worth um, it's worth noting that, uh, I guess, uh, worth repeating, at least, that this is, it's a really, really useful way to get use out of all of the stuff in your, in your library, you know. Um, yeah, unless you are a very, very, um, you know, brand loyal uh, type of gamer, you are more often or more likely to have stuff from a bunch of different editions. Even if you're a modern player and you only got into the game with, say, Pathfinder or, you know, D&D 5th, you may have the odd thing that um, either you see there or, you know, if you're trying to flush out more information, um, the, like, let's say you're playing in uh, the Forgotten Realms with 5th uh, edition D&D and you're not using a pre-generated adventure and what you want to do is flesh out you know some of the um the some of the, the setting you know you want to learn more uh, about the setting well third edition has a huge library i mean second edition does as well too and i think second edition sometimes adapts a little easier to uh or converts a little more easily to fifth edition than what uh um third does but i mean you know um in my uh, a legacy of the Crystal Shard game. I'm running a adventure that was designed for third, or rather 3.5 fourth or fifth edition D and D using a D and D second. Um, I've made use of my third edition D and D guide. What is it? The Forgotten Realms campaign guide, which is for third edition, not 3.5. And um, I'm also, I mean, stealing from a bunch of other things. I, I use uh, house rules from the uh, Pathfinder, you know, Wilderness uh, Survival, or Ultimate Wilderness, um, for uh, weather conditions and how it affects things. The truth is, is that apart from 4th edition, 4th edition is its own animal because it's really got its own mechanical underpinning, but in a lot, and, and actually 5th edition, because of its bounded accuracy, you need to be a little more cautious with how you apply certain mechanical modifiers, but I mean, Going from Pathfinder back to um, second edition, say, if you're using AD&D or you're using OS, like OSE or some other old school game, it is pretty much like you can use the modifiers, particularly if they're combat modifiers, almost as written because more often than not, the combat modifiers that were applied are very, very similar to what was in uh, third edition. And third edition is very, very similar to the combat and tactics book. So you may need to, you know, eyeball some some things uh, with it to sort of adjust. But almost, you know, as written, you can make use and, and plug in whatever you want from other editions. And even the, the, I mean, so that's the easy answer, right? Like, and this is the answer I think that a lot of other people say is, oh, it's just super easy, blah, blah, blah. The one thing you need to do is, um, if when you're looking at it, is remember what the assumptions are of where you're adapting from and what the assumptions are of what you're adapting to. So if you're using, say, Pathfinder First Edition, uh, a Pathfinder First Edition adventure and you're converting it to Pathfinder Second, well, a couple things you need to bear in mind is that count, uh, combat balance in PF2 is different than it is in PF1. So 
you will you may need to adjust certain encounters if you um, you know if you don't want to have unforeseen consequences either that it's way too easy or way too hard but the easiest way to do that is just look in the bestiaries and or I know it's pronounced bestiaries but I've said bestiaries for years so what are you gonna do what are you gonna do um, the uh, look in the bestiaries and see if there's something that is a comparable uh, challenge you know, if the adventure is written for a 7th level character, or 7th level characters, and the encounter is a CR9, well, you're going to look for something that's a little bit higher level than what the, um, you know, uh, than what the encounter is. And just find stuff that has the same uh, rough level and rough kind of abilities. Like if it's a melee fighter, use a melee fighter. If it's a ranged fighter, use a ranged fighter. If there are specific things that the adversary does in the original material, in the thing you're adapting, um, like, say, they've got, you know, entrapment rules or they've got certain magical abilities, try and capture those as well, too, because that's probably something that will give that encounter flavor. But um, you don't need to worry too much about what the actual descriptions are or whatever. If you're using just the stats, like, I, I can't tell you how many things that ogres have, you know, been as a stand-in in, I mean, almost every game I run, if I need to have a big tanky thing that hits for a lot of damage but is hit very easily, um, I describe it as different things, but I use the ogre stats, and I've done that in Pathfinder 1 and Pathfinder 2 and uh, AD&D, you know, I mean, it's, um, you don't, the players will never know, you know, um, and if you need to adapt stuff uh, quick and easy, um, take advantage of that, you know, like, one of the things that, um, uh, that, uh, Pathfinder did, but I, I didn't see a lot of people necessarily make use of is some of those quick and easy uh, templates where it's just like make it a little bit harder and a little bit easier. I think once the computer program came out for adapting, uh, like changing monsters and things like that, I think some folks felt that they needed to put all the work in to do that. But at the end of the day, the players are never going to see that. So you don't necessarily need to, you know. Um, you, you do need to, in a game like Pathfinder 1, you do need to... Keep, it, keep in mind all of the little things, you know, uh, that requires a little bit more work, but I'm assuming that most of my listeners aren't adapting to Pathfinder 1. They're adapting from that uh, to something else, you know. Um, the other thing you need to uh, bear in mind is, you know, what a what the, the, the sort of combat experience is like in, uh, in the different games and how the players will go through it. In a Pathfinder game, um, there's very... It's very rare that you see something. Maybe, um, what do you call it, the uh, Kingmaker uh, path. That might maybe a little different. But it's rare that you see people, you know, um, try and wear down adversaries with a series of sorties. Going into a, an, an adversary's lair and then going out, you know, uh, and recovering. You know, you, you just kind of, because most of the encounters are assumed to be balanced, you just sort of go in and, and deal with all your adversaries as you go and maybe take a rest while you're in there. That's not the case for games like AD&D where or even 5th uh, edition necessarily, where the characters may take short rests or go back and then, um, you know, uh, take another run at their, um, you know, at the uh, the adversary. If that's the case, then uh, you just need to, be, you know, you may need to put more adversaries in in a place. You know, if, if a place has 14 or, you know, 20 goblins in it in a Pathfinder Adventure, I'm going to put probably 60 goblins in that because... The characters will churn through them a lot faster. You don't need to worry about the, uh, um, you don't need to worry nece about necessarily the uh, um, them fighting all of them at once. What you can assume is that they're going to fight them in waves, and that sort of believable, you know, uh, number 
I guess slightly order that static number is something that plays to this to the type of play experience you get in AD and D, where it much of the rules try and simulate what um, you know what you're experiencing, what you would experience in reality. Uh, you would be able to rely on attrition tactics, you know, slowly wearing them down. So, so you just need to adapt that way. But I mean, for the most part, um, you can just even like little things. Like if you want to have, uh, say, in a Pathfinder adventure like Rise of the Rune Lords, in the opening session, there's a thing with a, a goblin bard in it. Well, just take a first level bard and use the stats for that and have that call it a goblin. You know, I mean, there's not really much more you need to do with uh, with that in, in your game. Um, if it's in a Pathfinder 2, say you're going for Pathfinder 1, Pathfinder 2, find something that gives a little bit of a morale bonus. Uh, or if you really need to, there are rules for building adverse or for building monsters, but that's usually more work than is needed, especially for something that's going to last one uh, encounter. Just find something you know that that fits close, or just give it a uh, an ability that uh, says you know give it plus give its adversaries or allies plus one to to hit while it's banging its drums. You know while it's taking two actions to bang its drums, that's what it gets to do. Um, what else can I think of here? I'm going to put a pin in this for a moment, step out, and I'll be back. I guess another thing to consider is, uh, you know, to maybe ask yourself, why are you converting it? You know, why, why are you making use of this? It may be that your, your group, um, you know, just prefers a different game. They may be 5th edition players and you want to run a Pathfinder Adventure Path. Or, uh, you know, they're Pathfinder 2 players, but you really want to, you know, crack out the old... Uh, I don't know, Tomb of Horrors or something like that. You know, the thing that, if you keep in mind why you're adapting it, um, that might help you understand what things that you may need to do to uh, to adapt the game you're running uh, for the uh, module. So, you know, for instance, if you're running Keep of the Borderlands uh, or Keep on the Borderlands, you may need to, uh, uh, you may need to keep in mind uh, the... Uh, you know, the, like things like how long torches are burning. That that campaign uh, relies a lot on on uh, on forays. You go out, you go back, you go back, go, go out, go back. Um, the night below campaign assumes that there's going to be time passing for training. You know that you're going to use uh, make use of the AD and D uh, second edition uh, rules for how long it takes to train. If you're going to to do that, if you're going to um, adapt that one. Uh, to say Pathfinder One uh, or to D&D Fifth, you make you have to make a decision of about well, you know, the in the reason behind the making use of the training rules is to give the campaign room to breathe. Not everything happens in the span of a week in that game. It is a, a campaign that sprung, that spans years, you know, uh, of the characters getting to know everyone there, you know, uh, spending downtime at different locations. You know, in ours, it, it honestly kind of feels our camp, particular campaign. It feels a little more like the, um, you know, the Adventures in Middle Earth or the One Ring uh, RPG, where your um, the characters uh, end up getting more, uh, you know, more time passes, and they um, they uh, get to know different locations. Like I, I can't remember what they call them in. Uh, in one ring or adventures in middle earth but they're like home bases places that you can safely you know uh do some downtime and the um that that's sort of what has been what's happened with our uh, our campaign is that characters have you know slowly gotten to know um different for them their trainers at different locations but like we've 
you know, quote unquote, unlocked, I think three or four different locations now, three, three locations. One of them is, uh, the, uh, original town of Milbourne, uh, where they started off. The next is, um, Thur, uh, Thurmaster, the, uh, second town in the campaign. And then they also unlocked, uh, the, uh, uh Aarakocra settlement of Featherfall. Uh, you know, uh, we don't use training rules in, in our Icewind Dale game, but that one has more of a urgency and, um, the, the fact that the time is passing isn't quite as important as the big plot points that are happening. It's a different, uh, it's a campaign that is paced in a very different way. So, um, that makes for a very different approach. We don't need those training things, but in, um, in Night Below, that's a big part of it, you know, and the characters have gotten to know the characters that are there. They've done a lot of tasks for them. Sometimes they're doing things to try and cut down on their training costs, you know, uh, as they, uh, uh, as they do their uh, their training by doing little missions for the characters or role playing with the characters, so it's um, yeah, I mean it, it has proven to be a an important uh, part of that uh, you know uh, of that campaign is the uh, the training uh, element, and I I think that if you it wouldn't ruin the game by any means, but it is really I think that it's an important part of that campaign. And uh, if you didn't capture that in your own uh, in your own game, you might be losing something. You know, you might be losing out on on at least uh, one part of the uh, of the thing that makes that campaign really special. Is you know, my, our characters spending a, a, a season with the uh, Aarakocra and then learning their language. You know, after first meeting them, that was that was pretty cool, and it's been a cool impact going forward. So. Um, that's just an assumption from that one. And if you're going to run it in a game like Pathfinder or a, a game like um, Pathfinder 2, you, you may want to consider adapting those rules uh, or incorporating something similar, you know, uh, from uh, from that. And if I was to just, uh, you know, without uh, spending too much time to, to think about it, uh, the rules from Kobold Press's Midgard World Book, where they suggest that the time between the adventures should be how much time has passed in the real world. That's an interesting way of just simulating a uh, the passage of time in your game without having to keep track of a calendar or whatever. So, but in any event, that is um, yeah. That's just a little a couple of thoughts on uh, on adaptation. All right, so I think that's it for uh, this episode. Um, as is always the case, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can feel free to shoot me a voice message on Anchor. Uh, you can uh, sh- shoot me an email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at dungeonmusings, and you can find on any of the recent videos from the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel a link in the description of those videos to the Dungeon Musings Discord server, and you are more than welcome to join us on there as well. Um, I think that's it. I'll probably have more to say about the adaptation, hopefully in a more constructive format, but I might do that in the form of a video, uh, rather than a, um, uh, a, a podcast, but uh, we will see. Um, if you are listening to this during the current, uh, quarantine crisis, I do hope that this finds you healthy uh, and safe and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. I know with us segueing into the winter at the time of recording, uh, things are expected to get a little bit worse as far as the uh, infection rates are going. So I do hope everyone's doing well. I uh, hope I gave you a couple of hours here to uh, turn your minds off of the troubles of our world and think about some uh, fun, nerdy gaming stuff. And until I see you again, happy gaming. <laughs>